Greetings and welcome on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute. Uh, my name is Michael Le Chevalier. I'm Associate Director here. Um, with this fifth presentation, we are now halfway through our summer series on reason and beauty in the Renaissance. Um, and I think it's fitting uh, with this division here um, to be turning to today's lecture on measure and mathematics in Renaissance philosophy that it will be focusing on the work of Jacques Lefebvre de Tapla. Um, today's lecture is going to be presented by Professor Richard Osterhoff. Professor Osterhoff is lecturer in early modern European history at the University of Edinburgh. He received his PhD in the history and philosophy of science from the University of Notre Dame. His research areas include the social practices of knowledge communities, early modern data management, the history of print and reading, the visual culture of early mathematics, apprenticeship patterns for learned and craft knowers, women artisans and teachers, and increasingly global and comparative approaches to early modern history. He was recently a collaborator on a major interdisciplinary research project based out of the University of Cambridge entitled Genius Before Romanticism, Ingenuity in Early Modern Art and Science. He has held fellowships from the Warburg University, the Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Study, the Huntington Library, and the Houghton Library at Harvard University. Um, before I welcome Professor Osterstaff to our, our stage, I'd also want to call to mind um, that you can ask questions at any time using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, or if you're joining us by Zoom, by emailing them in to info at lumenchristi.org. I will come back on towards the end of our presentation today um, to be sharing those questions um, with Professor Osterhoff. Um, Professor Osterhoff, I invite you at this time to unmute yourself, um, turn on your camera and take it away. All right, thank you so much, Michael. Um, can everyone hear me? You're sounding great. Excellent. Thanks so much. I'm I'm really delighted to be included as part of this lineup, um, and I've been enjoying the the talks given so far, and look forward to the next. Um, before I say too much more, why don't I pull up my um, my PowerPoint so that you can see something other than my face while I, while we go. All right, do we see a PowerPoint there? Everything looks great on this end. Good. All right. Before we get into some Renaissance things, um, why don't we start off with a, a reminder of, of the power imagined and real that mathematics has in our society. Um, when we think about kind of mathematics, um, the kind of attitudes towards people that uh, to, to the attitudes towards mathematics that we can see around us um, that also influences politics. Um, sometimes we come up against these kinds of lines, right? So there's a, a fictitious quote from uh, Galileo or rather a mangled quote from Galileo. Um, there's a, a, a lovely line from Freeman Dyson about um, nature speaking in the language of mathematics. Um, and, and there's Eugene Wigner um, who, um, who has, has written a, an excellent and really interesting um, statement of exactly this point that mathematics um, is the thing that gets us into the secrets of, of how nature works. Um, that is um, in some ways and sometimes related to uh, Renaissance philosophy or Renaissance philosophers or maybe Renaissance thinkers in general. So we'll sometimes have a, 
a kind of a genealogical story to tell about how this comes out of Descartes or maybe someone like Da Vinci um, and how the way they thought about numbers might relate to something about how nature works. Um, so that's an explanation of some kind for where we've come from when we think about nature and when we think about numbers and measurement. At the same time, one of the big questions that remains in kind of intellectual history is how we get this, this kind of rich mathematical set of assumptions that I've just mentioned um, out of the long stretch of history. Um, so for example, uh, kind of a standard story about uh, medieval mathematics or medieval assumptions about mathematics is that mathematics is useless on the one hand. Um, it's use, theoretical maths certainly are useless for explaining the world of sensation Aristotle taught. Um, and he kind of uh, set in place one massive assumption about how mathematics sticks to the world of nature when he wrote about abstraction, the theory of abstraction, which suggests that mathematics actually doesn't explain anything. Why not? Well, um, think about the things that you do want to understand about the world of nature, the things that change, um, the things that develop color, warmth, capacity to grow, um, why seeds or eggs grow into the things they do. Um, how does mathematics say anything about that? It might not be, it, given um, Aristotle's description of these phenomena, um, it's not clear that mathematics does. Another reason that um, it's hard to understand why mathematics has the kind of you know, outstanding and um, massive power it might in current uh, culture is, is that medieval or early mathematics was often seen as disreputable. Um, so it had a low status, often associated with, with practitioners, people who went around measuring things for a job. So um, uh, whether that be, you know, people who made barrels, for example, or on the one hand, or, or grubby astrology, you know, this thing that physicians did in order to think a little bit about how to diagnose the future tendency of ailments. Those practitioners often referred to the powers of the stars in order to understand why disease took the course it did. Um, so those kinds of things made people distrust mathematics as a powerful mechanism for explaining nature. So the question is, how do you get from there to um, something like the statements we see in Descartes, Galileo, um, and so on, down to um, uh, Freeman Dyson, um, physicists in our own day? And there are a couple of classic narratives um, uh, that maybe it's helpful to have in the back of our minds in order to think about this. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a kind of a, a Platonist story, right? Which is that um, Aristotle's worries about maths disappeared when Plato in the Renaissance um, assumed a rightful place as a king of the philosophers or something like that. And therefore people started to imagine that ideas or mathematics, which is pretty much all about ideas, isn't it? Um, took the place of Aristotle. The other myth um, is that it, it was, you know, the artisans or the artists um, and their knowledge grew in power. And so the people who were disreputable previously now had a hold on knowledge and that it, and numbers came with that. Um, and there are kind of very powerful stories that we, we tell about these things. Um, on the left there, you see Horst Bredekamp, a German um, historian of, math, uh, of, of art, um, writing about Galileo in what is, you know, the latest installment of many, many, many accounts of Galileo actually being an excellent artisan, which is why he knew so much about nature. Um, uh, on the far right, you have an older story, but um, still a powerful one, especially among scientists themselves. Um, which is that um, the kind of insight 
of, of uh, mathematics is one about uh, collecting, connecting to the platonic ideas that, that might be behind the appearances of reality. And the, the, the reason I set these two out is because I want to remain firmly in between these two um, with stories like the one that Peter Deere um, tells us here about the 17th century Jesuits. Um, they, he said, um, presented a bunch of books that thought about mathematics in ways that had impact, uh, influenced how you measured things, how you measured uh, astronomical phenomena, but also just measured uh, things out on maps, um, things out um, in the world of optics um, and so on. Uh, so this book, Discipline and Experience, is just one of a kind of a rich uh, vein in the history of science, um, which thinks about this middle way. Um, we could also, I could mention people like um, Mordecai Feingold at Caltech, who looks at the English universities. Um, uh, my own Dr. Fanter at um, Notre Dame um, has written about Peter Ramus um, in, this, in this vein as well, um, a French uh, philosopher in the second half of the 16th century. The story I want to tell and that I want to kind of focus on today with you is about um, an early phase in this. Uh, story of how uh, neither myth one nor myth two is right, but rather it was all about textbooks um, and kind of the culture that people, many people reading textbooks could create by reimagining uh, um, uh, what mathematics might do for understanding nature. Um, uh, my story starts around 1500 in the first generation of people who are reimagining textbooks in print. Um, and as they're doing so, they're kind of plagued with ideas, promises that mathematics might unlock the secrets of the natural universe. And so that's, that's where we're going to go now. Um, and the figure kind of at the center of this group of people who are doing this kind of work um, at the University of Paris around 1500, the figure at the center is Jacques Lefebvre de Temple, whom you've heard mentioned already. Michael. Um, let me um, try to divide up what we're going to talk about in the next half hour um, in uh, three chunks. Uh, so I just want to introduce you to Lefebvre and his circle. Um, what are they doing? What's the context um, in Paris that they're working in? Um, then I want to think a little bit carefully about how geneal uh, genealogy of authorities motivates this group to turn to mathematics in order to solve what they saw as the intellectual problems of the day, um, to help theology, but also to help natural philosophy and other things. Um, and then I'm going to try to indicate why this circle um, was influential. So I'm going to suggest three different legacies that they left behind that help connect, you know, this tiny group um, um, operating around 1500 at Paris to the larger story of intellectual history. Um, uh, and history of science. All right, let's start with Lefebvre and his circle. So Lefebvre, who is he? Well, um, he is a brilliant French humanist, uh, famous now um, usually for his connections to Italian humanism. Um, so three times he traveled to Italy over the Alps, difficult travels, but each time he came back with more works, manuscripts, connections, especially to people like Marsilio Ficino and Angelo Tiziano and Pico della Mirandola, at least you know, from his travels in 1491 before they, they died. Um, 
And those kinds of connections made him famous already in his own day, but also have made historians kind of look closely at him. Um, so he's a really big figure in kind of understanding understandings of the French Renaissance and a sign of the Italian Renaissance moving north. Um, the other thing for which he's most widely known um, is his role in the early French Reformation. Um, so he, after he retired from teaching at the university, um, he took re up residency in, in a monast local monastery, began to write many books of exegesis, um, biblical studies, um, including on the Psalms, um, on the Apostle Paul's um, letters. Um, and then in the 1520s, he picked up a pattern of diocesan reform um, in the Diocese of Meaux nearby, nearby Paris. Um, in which he enacted a kind of an evangelical sort of phase of reform, which was swiftly shut down um, due to pressure from the theology faculty at Paris, but nevertheless turns, it becomes the kind of beginning moment, the mythical moment towards which um, uh, people who wish to pursue kind of uh, Huguenot reform and so on uh, throughout France, um, to which they turn in order for uh, to, to think about inspiration. Um, and later on, um, uh, the, one of the kind of figures behind that movement of reform is Marguerite de Navarre, whose court he belongs to until his death. Um, the queen's, the king's sister um, uh, in France. Um, this is a very incomplete sort of account of who he is, sorry. Um, the extra slide there. Um, in his day, he was actually more famous as a university humanist. So he spent more than almost anyone you might care to point to in Paris, more years um, as a regent master in a Paris college, the Collège du Cardinal Lamoine. Most people, you know, taught for a few years as an arts master um, uh, before taking on much uh, better jobs in someone's court or um, in a bureaucracy somewhere, or maybe moving on to theology or medicine and one of the higher faculties. Um, so he, he's committed to philosophy. He's committed to what is done and studied and known to be philosophy in the BA and the MA at the University of Paris. And so out of the 1490s through 1507 and even beyond, um, he writes new paraphrases, editions, textbooks for all of the arts curriculum. Um, this includes all of Aristotle, um, some of these books he does in multiple versions, um, short paraphrases and then long extended commentaries. And then he also provides a suite of mathematical textbooks. And I, I ask you to remember the 1490s is the first moment when people are producing bespoke textbooks for university teaching in anywhere in Europe. Um, so this is the first effort to kind of reimagine what this, you know, several decades old technology of print might do for university teaching. So that's a really significant moment. As he moves past around 1499, um, as he's becoming a little bit more senior as a university lecturer, professor, um, he takes on slightly new tasks, tasks that aren't necessarily very uh, comfortable for a philosophy professor, um, but ones he starts to really care about. Um, he does several editions of Important Church Fathers, um, a very important one, as we'll see, of Dionysius the Areopagite. Um, he does collections of medieval mystics as well. Um, and then by 1514, well after he's kind of left the university and joined the monastery, um, he does a massive edition, the uh, very important edition, uh, the, the, the one um, many people still use it, um, uh, uh, 
of Nicholas of Cusa. And so we'll come to that as well to explain more fully. So this is the picture. This is the version of Lefebvre de Temple that I want to uh, talk a little bit further about. And I want you to reimagine a little bit where he's at in the 1490s. Um, this is a map of Paris. Um, it's from the early 17th century, in fact, but it just gives us a nice overview of, of the city. You can see the island on which Notre Dame de Paris is at the center there. Um, you have to remember this is the context in which there's war with Italy. Um, University culture really is on the uptick at this point. Um, in around 1400, there are maybe 30 universities in all of Europe. Um, around 1500, there are about 66 universities. So the number of universities has doubled. And in fact, all of many of those universities take Paris as a blueprint. So for how they are to operate, they send people back to Paris who then go on to um, teach at universities away from Paris. Um, and so, you know, it, the, the university life is, is going through a period of rejuvenation in some ways. Um, in the Latin Quarter, um, which is, uh, I don't know, can you see my cursor there? Um, this top right section in, within the city uh, wall um, is where Lefebvre, but in fact, all students would have been perhaps 10,000 students crammed into that area um, studying arts. Um, in that area, um, and I just, here's another map which kind of shows a little more schematically, Cardinal, the Collège du Cardinal Lemoyne is situated just inside the city wall. Um, just outside the city wall are some important resources for him. Just outside the city gate next to him is the Abbey of St. Victor. So the Victorines, really important in the 12th century, but in fact, having retained a significant presence in Paris intellectual life all the way through, also have one of the richest libraries available and have very interesting collections of uh, medieval, but also patristic uh, texts. Uh, another thing that's nearby is the Rue Saint-Jacques, which is the printer's district, as well as the place where several of the bigger important colleges um, for example, the College de Sorbonne. These, so in other words, 10 minutes either way, he's got access to really significant feature um, kind of resources, intellectual resources that show up um, in this um, vast range of texts that um, he and his colleagues um, produce in the 1490s and onward. All right, so that's, that's a bit of context there. Here's just an image that gives you a little bit of a better sense of um, if you look at the top here, um, that's the Abbey Saint Victor. Um, Collège de Cardinal Lemoyne right here inside the city of Wall. Um, uh, something that uh, is worth kind of keeping in mind this physical context and a physical context booming with perhaps 10,000 undergraduate students. Lefebvre turns out to be a very popular teacher. Um, and so a lot of people uh, are interested in joining his college just because he's teaching there. And because, and they tend to join him in the producing of the new textbooks and so on that he's, he has. And here's just a name of four that give you a sense for the range of the kinds of people that are involved in this. And each one of these four in different ways is also involved in the mathematical project that I've mentioned so far. Um, Josse Klichtover, um, a Flemish uh, um, doctor of theology who, who becomes really significant in Paris theologian politics, um, you know, during the period when Henry VIII, for example, is looking at the Paris Faculty of Theology to approve his efforts of, of, of divorce or, or um, suspending marriages. Um, Charles de Beauval, who's a, um, a, a canon later on, 
but essentially derives much of his intellectual pull out of Lefebvre. And again, the, tech, the shared textbook projects they have. Um, I mentioned also Gérard Roussel on the, on the uh, bottom right corner there, um, who's the guy who um, keeps Calvin in Geneva. He's also Lefebvre's student. So you get this kind of range of very interesting people, again, who all have a hand in producing these textbooks, which, and I'm just here showing just sort of, you know, a few snaps of, of, of some of the things that they were interested in. Um, so uh, lots on Boethian arithmetic or number theory. If you look on the bottom right, there's a game that, um, it's a 12th century perhaps uh, game uh, that's based on Boethian arithmetic. You solve the sums of, uh, uh, of Boethian proportions, allowing you to move figures around on a chessboard um, and eventually getting rid of all the opponent's pieces. So it's a maths game that helps you both master and also kind of play with what you're learning. Um, he's also got, uh, you know, a, a really high-end textbook on uh, musical harmonic theory that he writes himself. So music's important here. Um, he's working with musical practitioners in the area. Lefebvre, um, as late as 1516, so well after he's moved out of the university officially, is still producing editions of Euclid's Elements of Geometry in grand editions that end up being used throughout um, and republished uh, throughout the 16th century. Um, he also he also has you know a massive astronomical commentary on one of the the basic astronomical books of the day, which is backed up then by his own kind of invention of an advanced astronomy textbook. So you get a sense for the range of things that were considered astronomy in his day and that were included in the university curriculum that he was teaching on and then also devising textbooks for. And if you look, if you're clever, um, and zooming in on the left, uh, you'll see that there's also little bits on quadrature of the circle uh, uh, of, uh, um, and um, problems in perspective, um, which um, students of his, Charles uh, Vavel, publish as well. So there's, you know, a rich range of mathematical culture. Now, one question then that we have to ask ourselves is why, why all of this? I'll, I'll say a little bit about what's in this kind of mathematical culture, what's going on with it. But I think really interesting question is, you know, why turn to mathematics um, if you're this kind of teacher at this kind of university at this time? Um, one thing to think about is the context of university reform. Um, that's kind of uh, dividing and sweeping through Paris at this time. Um, it's a context of thinking about uh, universities as comparable to monastic forms of reform. So Lefebvre at one point um, wants to join a monastery. Um, uh, he's drawn so by the example of the Catalan mystic and missionary Ramon Lull, who he's reading. Um, and he, just, he thinks, well, wouldn't it be amazing to um, just spend my life in contemplation on these kinds of interesting truths? Um, it, but it turns out that his friends convince him that um, he would uh, hurt himself because he is too much of an ascetic bent um, and he would never eat properly. Um, and so he's talked out of joining um, uh, a, a monastery and instead devotes himself to university teaching. Um, so that gives you a sense for the kind of motivation behind this, um, shaping souls almost in a monastic sense, but then with an eye to the kind of devotional reforms that are also further shaping university life, beginning with someone like Jean Gerson, who's the chancellor of the University of Paris around 1400, but perhaps the most widely read devotional writer of the 15th century throughout Europe, anywhere. Now, his, his emphasis on how to carry out this kind of reform is different. 
someone like Jean Gerson or perhaps the Devotio Moderna, who are also, you know, uh, low countries uh, um, uh, devotional movement, um, who Lefebvre knew about and published. Um, he, um, th they, they have a view of reform that sh talks about first reshaping the affections, the heart, before going on to intellectual forms of reform. Um, the idea is that um, uh, the head can't lead you out of a problem, the heart must. That's not the route that Lefebvre and his students always follow. Um, they're attracted, to, sometimes they explain it that way, what reform must look like, what shaping souls must look like. But very often, in fact, they turn to sources like um, followers of Albertus Magnus um, uh, and other sorts who are very much interested in reforming mental facility with abstract concepts, right? So reform of the mind's eye, um, intellectual forms of reform. That's what Lefebvre is officially drawn to. And to justify that kind of project of reform, um, what we have and what we can see are um, a genealogy that sort of comes into play. Um, Lefebvre, remember, he is a humanist in a certain sense, maybe a humanist in the same sense that um, most intellectuals are throughout the Middle Ages, which is um, very much interested in authorities and in commentary and the, the, the reckoning with authorities in order to think about the history of knowledge and thereby also think through um, a history of uh, an individual's mode of learning. And so mathematics comes through in the kinds of authorities that someone like Lefebvre really values. Um, and you can see that here in this paragraph that begins his 1516 edition of Euclid's Elements of Geometry. Um, so he talks about how something shines forth um, where light li lives inaccessible. By this light, one can reach the truth as if climbing certain steps, especially if one knows the method of analogies in that direction. Now, it's a gift of God. So notice it's not purely kind of pulling up oneself up by the bootstraps, a kind of a Platinian story of intellectual assurrection, but it is um, uh, one which he traces back through a series of different books. So he, he, he refers here to Oda of Mormon, 12th century um, uh, monastic kind of commentator on numbers, scriptural numbers in particular, um, numbers that you find in scripture. And he, he, he comes up with rationales for how to read that um, uh, allegorically. But then he also refers to Nicholas of Cusa as kind of the pinnacle of that sort of knowledge. And then he says, well, actually, all of this kind of mode of doing mathematical philosophy was indeed ancient, um, existing even before Pythagoras, Plato, and Aristotle. And so that's why he recommends it to everybody. Um, let's just, I, I, I've listed a few names here, and we could, I could add a, a handful more probably if we tried. Um, but I want to go through just a few just to give you a taste of, you know, um, how this is put together. Um, when Lefebvre um, begins publishing, one of the first things he publishes is Ficino, Marsilio Ficino, the, um, uh, the Italian Platonist's um, tradition, uh, trans translation of uh, Trismeg Hermes Trismegistus, who's reputed, of course, to be um, uh, from the time of Moses, one, uh, you know, a source of the Prisca Sapientia, the ancient wisdom. Um, and here he digs out, you know, quasi-Pythagorean, what we might see as quasi-Pythagorean ideas of the unity of all things um, coming from the one, um, and there this resulting in a kind of an outflowing of multiple, uh, multiple reality. 
um, which allows us to then climb back to the one in our um, intellectual reflections. Aristotle, he sees also in this scheme, right? So um, it's not Plato who's the, who, who's, who's the big guy, um, it's Aristotle. There's a bunch of reasons for that. One is that Aristotle is much better for teaching in universities because you know he has a textbook on physics, he has a textbook on logic and so on. Um, uh, Plato doesn't. Also Plato awkwardly offers uh, you know, suggestions for um, forming a society around uh, um, uh, people held in common, right? So uh, men and women um, having sex with each other without kind of with kind of abandon um, in in the Republic, and that doesn't go down well. Um, that that mode of thinking about uh, um, uh, civic responsibility doesn't go down well. And so, what one someone like Lefebvre is going to be cautious about introducing students to um, Plato, at least undigested. So Aristotle's the guy. Um, Aristotle's also um, not only proven himself by having all these handy textbooks available, but also in his metaphysics, as Lefebvre reads him, offers a way of thinking about intellectual formation, about wisdom, um, that helps take account of the cycle of knowledge, about the encyclopedia, if you like, the, the various disciplines through which one must move while at, at university. Um, and that cycle turns out the way Lefebvre interprets it, um, to be particularly well joined to Christian wisdom. In other words, it works out well with Christian wisdom as he teaches it. Um, and there's a harmony, a kind of a harmony he sees out there. So that's something we could expand upon. I'll leave it at there for now. Um, a really key figure um, for Lefebvre is Dionysius the Areopagite, understood as um, St. Paul's first convert on the Areopagus um, from the book of Acts in the Bible, New Testament. Um, so he, he sees um, Platonists, you know, late antique Platonists as having actually ripped off Dionysius the Areopagite, um, who had the original Christian philosophy, right? So he sees that as something that one must focus upon. Um, and he writes this uh, massive commentary with an edition of uh, the works of Dionysius that becomes um, uh, very influential throughout the 16th century interpretation and reception of Dionysius. I'll come back to that a little bit, um, perhaps. Let me point out now why Dionysius seems significant also in relationship to mathematical knowledge. Um, Dionysius was reputed due to a particular letter he, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, now we know is uh, probably not an authentic letter, but it's a, it's a letter in which Dionysius is writing in the character, right, of, of, of the authentic uh, Dionysius student of Paul, and who had been kind of driven to think about, to think about, um, to think about Christ's, passion and the eclipse that caused the darkness during the three hours of Christ's passion um, to have been caused by a miracle. So Dionysius, why does Dionysius think that it was in fact a miracle? Well, the way Lefebvre explains it and the way he mentions it first at the end of his astronomy textbook, as I've quoted right here in front of you on your screen, but then again also when he's commenting on the Dionysian corpus and on this particular letter in which Dionysius relates this experience, um, 
Dionysius recognizes this because he knows astronomy so particularly well. So he isn't in Jerusalem. He happens to be in Alexandria, according to the story. Um, and he recognizes that it's unnatural for an eclipse to happen and um, uh, uh, for three hours at a time. And the reason that's unnatural is because he, kno he knows it's unnatural is because his astronomical knowledge is right up to date. So here's a good reason for uh, someone to uh, do math in a way. Um, not only can you be wise like Dionysius, um, it can help you untangle um, the kind of naughty uh, uh, problems of deciphering natural movement from miraculous movement. All right, a next character um, that's in this genealogy is the Divus Boethius. So Boethius, who's we know um, to be a sixth century Roman senator, um, very likely a Christian in fact, but um, uh, who is best known because he did two things. He paraphrased Aristotle's and, uh, and commented on uh, chunks of Aristotle's logical, um, logical canon, his, his logical textbooks. Um, and supplied the, the Latin speaking world thereby with a starting point in Aristotle. He also then uh, provided a set of mathematical textbooks, particularly on arithmetic and music, and thereby gave Latin Christendom the set of starting textbooks for intellectual inquiry that first are used uh, and it is indeed the case that these were used um, in cathedral schools and earlier, um, but particularly, um, uh, as Lefebvre sees it, within the kind of broad sweep of university learning um, from the 12th and 13th centuries onwards. And so Boethius turns out to play a really significant role for him in, in convincing him that that kind of mathematics is worth paying attention to. Um, so Boethius's authority gives weight to that. And then of course, he pays attention to a certain group of modern writers, uh, modern to him, uh, like Nicholas of Cusa, precisely because they're people who appreciate Dionysius the Areopagite on the one hand, and also Boethius on the other. And um, you've had, I think, um, uh, organizing this series, but also um, uh, having given an earlier lecture um, just before this series um, in this forum, uh, by David Albertson, who has written a wonderful book about Nicholas of Cusa and his response to Boethius as well as 12th century Boethians on a mathematical theology. And Lefebvre fits himself absolutely within that, within that um, uh, framework. Um, so Nicholas of Cusa, he sees in his very influential edition, he sees as someone who um, is the mark of this intellectual philosophy slash Christian philosophy um, that um, he wants to propose is going to be good for the university. Um, and we could think a little bit more about this quotation in which he aligns Nicholas of Cusa um, with Dionysius as the expositors of an intellectual um, mode of reasoning that stretches beyond um, sense-based thinking, but also beyond opposition-based thinking and allows you to get beyond apophatic theology philosophy or theology by negation into a kind of theology of affirmation in which all things are understood at a fine point. Um, maybe we can come back to that idea. All right. So that by way of a whirlwind tool, tour of, of, you know, things that Lefebvre produces and that motivate his textbooks, 
which show you a little bit about why he thinks mathematics might be a really good solution for um, any potential problems within um, the university culture of his day, and therefore why he um, produces a bunch of mathematics textbooks. Now, what, what, what is the result in a way of this project? I mean, I wish I could um, go give you a blow by blow account of all of these textbooks. We're running up on time though. Um, so let me just kind of gesture towards three legacies, um, three ways that Lefebvre's project here and the project that he shares with the circle of students um, and other teachers at the university or at the University of Paris within the Collège du Cardinal Le Moine. Three legacies that um, impact the 16th century um, and beyond. One is, one is in theology, in fact. Um, so Lefebvre then does supply a way of thinking about uh, um, of theological texts that um, allows this form of mathematical learning to be, to be applied to biblical texts or other forms of theological texts. Um, Here's an, a really interesting example, and at least I find it very interesting. Um, it's Richard of St. Victor, 12th century uh, uh, mystic, remember at the Abbey of St. Victor that we've mentioned, who has this wonderful uh, six book treatise on the Trinity. Um, and it's just an exploration of, in a way of, of affect, of love as the thing that binds the three parts of the Trinity together. Um, in a way then, Richard of St. Victor doesn't supply an intellectualist's picture the way I read him. Anyways, um, others may have different views on this. It doesn't supply an intellectualist's view about how to think about the Trinity. Rather, he's interested in providing um, uh, 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 affect-based ways of talking about the Trinity. Lefebvre too recognizes that position. Uh, he recognizes that there is um, this, uh, Richard of St. Victor isn't going to argue into believing in a trinity, right? Rather, his claim and the way he reads Richard of St. Victor is that um, this is an exercise in the rational exploration of the faith. It's a way for faithful people to explore the potential within the concepts they're handed by Christian theology. But, and this is the crucial bit, Lefebvre decides that the way to do that is going to be to apply mathematical techniques, specifically the mode of reasoning that you use in Euclid's geometry, reasoning from definitions, postulates, common notions, and so on, to this text on the Trinity. Now, he again, the point is not polemical. In other words, he doesn't think this is going to serve a way of arguing people into the faith just because mathematical reasoning has been applied. But his, what he calls here his commentarius, uh, this commentary, which is done by an art, artful analytic, right, of geometry, um, allows him to tease apart things and see new things um, in, in, in what's going on there. Um, I'll, I'll, there's more to say about that, because what he ends up doing, and what's interesting to see him doing, is bringing an Augustinian definition of a numerical trinity, something that David Albertson has written about, into um, a text that has nothing of the kind. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a meeting of uh, commentary traditions. All right, so that's one way that he bequeaths, shall we say, a legacy. Um, a much more influential legacy, however, 
is his textbooks themselves um, and what they do with um, their approach to that problem I mentioned earlier of um, Aristotle's discomfiture with how abstraction doesn't really let you into seeing the causal underpinnings of natural change in the physical world. And the way Lefebvre finesses that point is by drawing on a principle of analogy that he thinks he finds in Aristotle, and which he thinks is a mathematical principle. So he thinks Aristotle teaches you about mathematics by talking about analogy. It is the case indeed that Aristotle has a lot to say about analogy and analogical forms of reasoning. And he helps, Lefebvre helps apply then rules in one form of discipline into other forms of discipline using that principle of analogy. And here's a really interesting place where he does it. It's in his rather advanced treatise on musical harmony, harmonics, which is about thinking about the relationship between different notes in terms of physically stretched out strings. It's a classical problem, it goes back to antiquity. Lefebvre, however, breaks all the rules, not all the rules, the main rule that Boethius, but also ancient Greek theorists gave you when you were going to go about doing musical harmony, which is this. You may not use anything except whole numbers. In other words, arithmetical numbers. You may not bring in principles from other parts of mathematics. And Lefebvre says, well, actually, the physical experience of the string suggests to me that it's not just about numbers. The physical ex of this experience of the string suggests to me that in fact, we can apply geometrical techniques, ways of thinking about lines and points. And those lines, points, and circles of geometry are what gonna allow us to do something really, some very interesting things, but reshaping the musical canon, reshaping um, musical harmonics. So I won't explain step-by-step step how that works exactly, but it's an interesting step um, in light of um, classical prohibitions um, on what you can do in music. The third legacy, and this is a little bit of, of the same principle where, um, Lefebvre takes the tools, the conceptual tools that are given to him from Boethius, from the ancient authors he's using to construct these textbooks and indeed medieval authors he's using to construct these textbooks. And then he tweaks them in these printed textbooks in order to make them do new things. And here's a, an example I particularly like, which is um, his commentary on a 13th century classic textbook for astronomy, which is the Sphere of Sacrobosco. Now, the Sphere of Sacrobosco is a tiny, thin little book. Um, I mean, it's four short chapters which introduce you to things like, you know, the sphere of fixed stars, where the Earth is fixed, uh, put within it, how the Earth is round, um, and then things like what's the ecliptic and what's the zodiac and, what, you know, all those sorts of things that are kind of basic to astronomy even now in some ways, but done within a um, uh, Earth-based or Earth-centric, Earth geocentric um, medieval astronomy. It never really gets technical. In other words, what I mean is it never asks you to calculate things. It never asks you to put numbers in and come up with new numbers or to make observations um, and thereby calculate where you are in, in different ways. Now, something that's new in the Renaissance and that Lefebvre knows about 
is not Ptolemy of astronomy, which most medieval university teachers had, or had some version, some usually um, uh, a shortened version of, but rather the new Ptolemy of geography, which had been rediscovered in the early 15th century. Now the geography textbook or the geography manual that Ptolemy gives, gives you new techniques for projecting the three-dimensional starry sphere onto a flat surface. In other words, for mapping locations. So cosmography or what we, we just might know as um, ma mathematical or mapping geography is this, is this set of techniques that allow you to give longitude and latitude for cities, places, and so on. And that's precisely what Lefebvre adds to this medieval non-quantified astronomy textbook of the sphere. So he takes something that's purely just kind of gesturing towards the heavens and says, here's a table of locations. Here's a way to map them. And so astronomy joins to this kind of Renaissance revision or um, reemergence of a mathematical geography. And he goes beyond that. And this is what's really interesting because it gets taken up by textbook writers. I mean, Lefebvre's the, um, you know, the first to experiment with this way of forming a new kind of cosmographical textbook and astronomy textbook in the 1490s already. But then he goes further and he takes um, the, the, the student reading this textbook through a step-by-step -step construction of how to use all the tables. So if you're reading a medieval textbook on uh, basic astronomy, you don't learn how to manipulate the numbers. If you read Lefebvre, you learn how to make a table and then you learn how to manipulate the table and how to turn that table into something that you can, you can um, do further th uh, tricks with, whether for um, astrology, medicine or something else. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting sort of thing. And you could trace this entering the textbook tradition um, throughout the next number of decades um, across Europe. Particularly, um, one of his kind of distant students is Orange Fien, um, who is the first royal professor of mathematics um, created by the, um, the uh, François Premier, uh, Francis I in Paris in 1531. Um, so he, he's a really significant figure for shaping mathematical culture all throughout Europe. He's, you know, got the most prestigious post at one of the most visible places. He produces a vast number of textbooks and usually his textbooks are in one way or another based on Lefebvre's and his circles kinds of textbooks, but rejigged um, for new audiences. Um, you can see some of this textbook also enter into um, another really important kind of influential center for writing textbooks, which is Wittenberg. Um, in the wake of people like uh, Philip Melanchthon um, and so on, who produced new ways of thinking um, about textbook and university culture. Um, again, Lefebvre turns out to be a figure who's behind that. Um, and and we, could, we could point to other, other contexts, Ramus um, at the University of Paris in the second half of the 16th century, um, has a whole suite of students who, who, who shaped this, Peter Ramus, who's an anti-Aristotelian um, teacher at the university. Um, or we might even indeed turn to the Jesuits um, and, and the Jesuits, famous for their teaching, of course, throughout Europe and beyond, um, reimagine their mathematical textbooks on the basis of the kind of textbook culture that Lefebvre sets in motion. Um, and indeed, they um, very often cite him as examples for where they're getting things for throughout the mathematical disciplines. So 
let me just sum up having now gone over time by about six or seven minutes. Um, the first thing I, I want to point out is that Renaissance excitement about measuring the world, about the capacity of mathematics to be the fundamental mode in which one starts to think about physics, about understanding various forms of, of change in the world, um, and indeed the beauty of the world. We haven't talked very much about that, but you can imagine how that might come out of some of these um, uh, medieval theologically motivated works. So this Renaissance excitement about these ways of thinking about the world emerged, I would suggest, not outside the medieval university, but rather within the institutional learning. Now, that's a kind of a historiographical argument um, that specialists um, debate, but I, I think it's worth pointing out this kind of argument because, you know, the science popularizers of our day will have you talk about thinking about how real knowledge comes from outside the box and how we need to, um, you know, break loose from uh, norms. Um, in fact, it seems like um, there's much more like, you know, 10,000 hours at work here of hard apprenticeship. Rather, innovation is the product of think from thinking within the textual tradition. Um, so that's one lesson to learn from this, if you like, um, if you want a kind of a, a, a crude, broadly applicable sort of thing. Hit, let me make this point and kind of switch the same principle around a little bit. Productive disagreement is only possible within a conversation. So if we want to understand what Descartes and, Mathem and, and, and Galileo, and you know, we can name a number of others, Kepler, why they mattered, why they could matter, to Europe, it's because they had a public that could interact with them. It's because they had a toolbox of, of ideas that wasn't limited to very small circles. It was something that could be broadly shared, debated, agreed and disagreed. Um, in other words, I would suggest that this is a key moment in kind of thinking about um, the emergence of, of shared mathematical culture, um, which is, um, the title of the book that I'm essentially summarizing for you here. Um, I have a couple of slides for further reading, but I think we'll hold off uh, looking at those more closely in the possible hope that they become useful when thinking through some questions. I'd rather talk with you now. Thank you. All right, well, great. Thank you so much. And um, if you could just stop sharing your screen at this time, we'll um, do move that. to sort of our broader um, uh, questions from our audience here. Um, but I, I, th I think I can say on behalf of all of us educators that uh, we've probably never found uh, textbooks so interesting. <laughs> Given our own, uh, our own proclivities today to probably try to avoid um, using textbooks within the classroom um, in favor, you know, with, particularly within fields like theology or ethics and mm -hmm. in favor of moving to original sources. Uh, and so I think that many of us are now seeing, uh, you know, the, the value of a mm, textbook indeed. of creating a shared culture. Um, could you, could you situate, you know, for those of us who do have that, that obstacle, um, uh, can you just go over one more time the innovation of the textbook? Um, Right. Um, it, so the, the idea here is how do you answer that problem that I, I kind of set up crudely and, you know, too sweepingly, no doubt, at the beginning? How do you answer that problem of 
overcoming Aristotle's objections to using mathematics in order to explain physical phenomena, um, which is kind of one of the big, you know, at least in classic histories of science, one of the big ways people uh, explain why um, mathematical science might be whispered about in the Middle Ages, but doesn't take off as the mainstream position. Well, you, you, what you need is a story about Aristotle that allows you, in fact, to cross disciplinary boundaries. It allows you to say um, principles used in, you know, in geometry can be used in arithmetic and music mm -hmm. and by analogy, in fact, might help you explain something more fundamental about, um, you know, strings um, and physical phenomena in the world. Um, there is a tradition, of course, of thinking this through in mixed mathematics by incorporating, and this is maybe another, the other, the other issue I mentioned earlier that, um, a block on thinking mathematically about many things was simply that, um, you know, it wasn't a high prestige discipline um, right. often. Um, once you really set mathematics kind of front and center within the university curriculum, um, and Lefebvre, if you go through his students and their notes, as I've done, um, it turns out expected his students to master this stuff in their first year um, before moving on to, you know, ethics and so on. Uh, moral philosophy. Um, if you if you do that, you bring mathematics into philosophy proper, um, and that becomes a move that those who are excited about mathematics do continually throughout the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, so it's a kind of a you know it's a it's a buffing the image of uh, of of mathematics as a proper philosophical pursuit rather than just a you know a thing that those technicians do in some back room. So, and there's a question from the audience that really bears right on this point for you to expand a bit. Um, an anonymous attendee asks, and, and just a reminder for anyone, you can pose questions using the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen. Um, they ask, um, it'd be useful if you could expand a bit on your contention that mathematics was disrepu disreputable uh, during yeah. this period of your analysis. It seems apparent that mathematics was essential in many aspects of medieval and early modern life. Um, this was not limited to astronomy, music, but also architecture, linear perspective in art and navigation, to name a few. Was this disreputable reputation a subset of a wider contempt for the rational intellect among Christian thinkers in this era? No, I think one way of thinking about that is that there were other ways of thinking about rationality. In other words, you could use logic. Now, we in the 20th century have found a lot of ways to think that um, logic and mathematics are the same thing. And if you ask a physicist, and if you ask many mathematicians, they will tell you it's the same thing. If you ask a logician, uh, they might, some would agree and some would not. Um, so Aristotle is, is very rational. Um, he, th he has um, quite a lot to say about logic as a rational set of techniques and sets in place many of the techniques we still use today if we're teaching undergrads logic. The question is, um, does that do all the same things in explaining how things move and change in the natural world, right? Um, uh, you know, that's, 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 so that's one part, uh, one, one, one part of it. I would suggest that this doesn't involve a contempt for the rational. It's a contempt for mathematics as being, as being a promising place to show mm -hmm. uh, risk. Now, if you look at the successes of mathematics um, in, in the 14th and 15th century, um, where, does, where do you find them? Well, you find them, uh, yes, a little bit in perspective, but who does perspective? Well, architects do. So the people who push around buildings and so on, and that's nice. And that's, that's you know, it's, you can relate that to 
um, high prestige things like cathedrals. But it's not necessarily the same thing as saying um, uh, the people who are good at manipulating mathematical problems or have high prestige jobs. So take astrology and astronomy. Um, astrology is the practical side of astronomy. It's the practical side of astronomy, which is most useful for physicians because astrology is generally seen in this period as a way of understanding how planetary movement affects human bodies and whether in a way that affects health. And therefore, if you wanna understand a disease fully, you need to have some kind of astrological workup. Now, again, who are the people manipulating that? Who are the people with the techniques? They tend to be physicians, again, perceived not as theoreticians of a certain kind, but practitioners. If we think of people like Alberti, Alberti's got a chip on his shoulder because he's worried that he's not going to be taken seriously because he's a practitioner, he's an architect. Um, and so therefore he's, he's a guy who gets his hands dirty. Um, this is not high prestige stuff. Um, we think of it as high prestige um, because they've, these stories have become so central to our vision of how the Renaissance looks and what we think about rationality and so on. Uh, astrology, it's, it's, you know, it's handwork. Architecture, similarly. Um, so what you need in order to lift up um, mathematics is the same set of moves that you need to lift up the visual arts more generally throughout this period. And this is the period, of course, in which artisans are finally starting to call themselves artists in some way, or at least they're claiming for themselves some of the qual qualities um, that we would associate with artists. This divino ingenio stuff that um, someone like Vasari will ascribe to them. So another um, sort of look towards that practical part, and another um, uh, participant in the audience asked a question about the relation between the mathematical and maybe a more practical aspect of spiritual exercises. Um, they ask, would you say that the practice of mathematics and measurement were themselves a spiritual exercise? And they say maybe in the Ignatian sense, or we could even look you know, to Hadot and others for Lefebvre. So I think Ado is really helpful uh, for understanding, you know, the purpose of philosophy in, in a pre-modern world. Um, mm -hmm. Now, one would want to be very careful about how to subdivide all of that. I showed you, um, so Ado is not talking about how people uh, pray in a cathedral or, or even indeed in a college. Some of the images I showed you were of, um, you know, the map of Paris. Let's remember that every single medieval, not every single one, but I, almost all medieval uh, colleges, Oxford, Cambridge, Paris, started out as foundations in order to bring together a community who was expected to pray regularly for the founder mm -hmm. or sing regularly for the founder. So this, you know, there's this not, the I'm not saying that um, universities were founded that way, but the colleges as institutions for housing scholars very often had that point. Um, so the assumption is that um, a college is a spiritual community. Now, obviously we know that um, colleges were also, you know, people were playing with all kinds of irreligious ideas and there was all kinds of, you know, disreputable things happening. But people who were aiming to reform the utility of colleges for the broader use of European life throughout the Middle Ages constantly have recourse to this question 
how can we create scholars whose souls are ordered well so that they can do things mm -hmm. like sing properly or, mm -hmm. and so on. So I think that's, it's not an aspect that gets played up in the history of uh, uh, um, universities. It's receiving a lot more attention by historians over the last um, decade or so, I would say, um, historians of, of, of medieval education. Um, but that's the context in which this kind of thing is getting off, um, off the ground. What does that mean for Lefebvre's specific project? Well, he's got, he's got some of that in view, I think. And that is borne out by the way he talks about what counts as wisdom. Yes, it can, you know, all the, all the you know, capacity to master moral conundra, the capacity to think through, um, uh, um, you know, the knowledge of things is seen as a good in itself, right? Mastering physics is great because you get to understand things, but it's also great because um, by understanding those things, you make yourself more, a more full human being. And by making yourself a more full human being, you're shaping your soul in a particular way. And so that's sort of like um, spiritual exercises of Ado, but slightly to the side of it. And with this very specific late medieval kind of um, uh, way of talking. On top of that, I would want to add, if you're looking for, I don't know, something like Ignatian exercises or something, uh, you know, like techniques, if you like, Lefebvre would ask you to think about um, what he calls sometimes intellectual philosophy or intellectual theology, which is where you take conundra and erase them. So for example, um, the unfolding of an angle, right? The unfolding of an angle that Kusanis talks about as representing um, the unfolding of God, um, where the minimum, is where the line meets itself and is enfolded within itself. And the maximum is the line unfolding all the way throughout the various degrees of fullness until it reaches a complete maximum and becomes as a straight line, one line once again. So the minimum and the maximum meet. And someone like Lefebvre takes those little nuggets, those little mathematical examples, quasi-mathematical, you might say, um, if you're really fixated on 20th century visions of what mathematics ought to be, um, as little, ways of thinking about reality, um, sometimes purely in physical terms, but sometimes also in theological terms. And the fact that this allows you to flip between different modes of thinking, um, he would see as a spiritual exercise, I'm sure, um, if you wanted to put it into him that way. So, and here's another question that sort of is a, a brief extension of this as well. Um, and, and, you know, I, I put here uh, Sean's full question um, where he, he has in the introduction to Aristotle's physics, Lefebvre writes, this is the end of philosophy. This is the whole endeavor of Aristotle and the philosophers to prepare us from the correct notion of sensible things to enter the intelligible world. And hence, insofar as they can lead us to know our blessed place um, uh, by, way of our by way of natural science, sensible things and mathematics, intentionable, yeah. inten intelligible world. Yeah. So to what degree would you say that we could be drawn nearer to salvation. I mean, we were just talking more about becoming a more fuller human. Um, does yeah. that also take it to uh, to Adam or even to Christ? Uh, is, is it as theological as that? That's a very interesting question. Um, and I think this is where um, a bit of coherence breaks down. Um, I mean, this is, this is the Augustinian question, isn't it? Um, to what extent is, uh, um, Augustine 
Platinian, right? That's a classic question in Augustinian scholarship, if you like. Plotinus, um, as a Platonist, thinks that there is a germ within ourselves, which allows us to kind of pull ourselves up, bootstrap ourselves up to God or to union, union with the one or something like that. Um, and you don't need external inputs into that system in order to bring that up. And Augustine says, well, actually, um, uh, the, the theology of sin requires us to recognize that um, it's really hard to do that. It's difficult. Intellectual labor isn't enough on its own, so you need infusions of grace. And so that's the, that's the dynamic, I think, that Lefebvre is working with. On the one hand, he's got Aristotle, who's drawing us towards a happy place. Remember, Aristotle in metaphysics um, ends contemplation with, um, you know, uh, the happiest soul is the one that's contemplating itself in a circle. And so that's kind of, it's a, it's a strange moment in, in Aristotle conceived on Aristotelian terms. You're not sure where it's coming from. It makes sense kind of in a Neoplatonic uh, context. Lefebvre is gonna suggest that mathematics is a great way for the soul to look at itself, right? So that's a way of doing that kind of, the soul looking at itself is, is, that is literally the contemplative mode in which um, one gets, to see the most pure things in reality that exist, intellectual things. Um, and that's going to be pretty useful for starting to think theologically. It's, it's where things are cleared of other distractions and, abs and, and so on the most. So, but that only gets you so far interestingly, I think, because when you read Lefebvre's dialogues on the physics, on the metaphysics, sorry, not the physics, when you read Lefebvre's dialogues, he punctuates it at the beginning and the middle and the end. And you know, it's a dialogue between a student and a master. And the master says it's three points. Here's the point where you pray so that you can learn effectively enough to rise to the next level. Mm. Now, that's reliance on prayer to actually complete the ascent of the soul, um, I think is really telling because it suggests to you that there's an Augustinian reversion to grace all the time. That's necessary mm -hmm. to inject something into the system that allows the soul to rise. Great. great. Is that answering the question? Yeah, no, I think, I think Sorry. it is. And um, so maybe shifting away from the soul to sort of this broader um, institution, uh, uh, both the university and the church, mm -hmm. uh, one of our attendees asks, what is the connection between Lefebvre's ecclesial reforming activity and his passion for mathematics. Do you see these two parts of his work related? That's a really interesting question. And I don't think I've figured it out entirely. I think, I think one thing that really matters to him is the formation of community that doesn't necessarily require um, orders or, taking, or become, taking religious vows. Right, so it's possible that he was a priest. Um, the evidence on that is a little bit scattered. Um, it's clear that the college, as I've described it too, as also being, it's a learning community, it's an intellectual community. It's also for many people and for him, certainly, it's a spiritual community, um, is a space for people to practice um, what John Van Engen calls, um, you know, another option. He sees the 15th century as a world of multiple options. Well, this is an option for practicing kind of a deeper, a hotter form of spirituality um, without necessarily taking orders. So there's that. In that, mathematics particularly, I think, represents a way of getting to the nub of experience, right? So 
mathematics allows you to play with your own thoughts in a kind of a really, really fundamental way. And that's interesting. Um, and it allows you to kind of reflect on what moves your mind is making. And um, Lefebvre would be someone I think who thinks that's no less spiritual than anything else. Um, and that's, that's, that's a facet of experience that um, he's really attracted to. He's also really, you know, he's a, he's a textual scholar. So in the kind of humanist mode, like someone like Erasmus, who's, you know, kind of the young guy on the block who feels like he has to push Lefebvre out of the way in order to make space for himself in Paris. Um, like, like Erasmus, he's really interested in kind of, you know, getting to a direct experience of the text, including the mathematical text. So this is a place where, individual experience, its relationship to texts, but also its relationship to concepts. And then probably, and it's a little bit harder to see this um, in his oeuvre, but uh, other kinds of human experience. So friendship really matters to him. Um, you can see coming back with a vengeance in a way in places like Mo, where he experiments with diocesan reform and, and in the early French Reformation. The problem is there. Um, I think in Mo, he and his students who are all educated in Paris and all have these really high intellectual ideals realize that um, it's really hard to cram all of that into a sermon and have mm -hmm. a village still be happy with you. Yeah. Um, and as a result, they, they kind of go back to basics in a fundamental way and they become évangélique in a in the sense that uh, Guillaume uh, sorry um Gérard Roussel um and, and Guillaume Farel and 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 others um who's also part of that circle pick up and and turn into um the French Protestant part mm. of the Reformation mm. yeah um so then um I guess looking a bit forwards into the future, um, Nuno Castelbranco has a question, uh, initially pointing out uh, that there seems to be an obvious link between sort of theology of the Trinity and mathematics, um, because it would share a certain kind of epi epistemological certainty. Mm -hmm. um, however, into the early modern period in modernity, the idea that mathematics is a certain science remains um, even in popular culture. Um, but in the epistemological certainty of theology seems to have collapsed, which becomes noticed mm. in the wider culture since the Reformation. Was mm. Lefebvre aware that this epistemological collapse in theology could happen, especially due to his desire for Reformation? Or if not, what could you say more about Lefebvre's contribution to the dialogue between science and religion? My suspicion is there's uh, several questions that I would need to disentangle um, <laughs> there. I haven't figured out the science and religion stuff. Um, once I kind of approached, I began my approach to um, Lefebvre with some of those questions in mind and then felt that he was more interesting than that. In other words, he was more interesting than just kind of polemics over that. Um, and so as a result, I, I, I kind of, I, I think I, I need to think harder about that before coming up with any kind of grand statements. There are, there are um, things to say about him and certainty in theology. Right. Um, he thinks the text really matters. And maybe that's another way of saying that same point about um, an individual, individual's experience of the text that I mentioned earlier. Um, he thinks the text really matters. Um, he thinks that he, he's at a point 
before um, textual studies explodes in multiple directions, I mean, as it does for the next, you know, thereafter, shall we say, when it still feels possible that if you get the text right and you just understand it right at the letter, at the level of the letter, and he distinguishes, he has a famous distinction between um, two literal senses, a spiritual literal sense, and then a literal literal sense, if you like. Then, you know, you can avoid dispute. Yeah. And that, fly, that, that blows up in his face fairly quickly because, um, uh, well, he, he has a footnote. Um, I think it's about Psalm 27 or something like that, um, which Erasmus thinks shows him a crappy reader of Greek. And Erasmus writes a massive takedown of the gray eminence, right? So Erasmus is a sparky, early, you know, uh, 1510s, um, can't quite hack the University of Paris. So he flies off, gets his degree by mail order, um, uh, comes back um, and, and has to do, out, do off the old guy, if you like. And, and just tears into him and Lefebvre backs away. Um, and he, he keeps doing scholarship, but he, he, he tries to just avoid the, the controversy, but the controversy keeps following him. So in a way, um, this is a failed experience, experiment mm. in trying to ground um, theology on the certainty of the letter. Um, that would be one way to go forward, I think, with taking this story um, into the kind of question that, that, that this really opens up. The, the science and religion one is, is, is fascinating. I think there's a lot more to be done on that because um, the readers of Lefebvre, the readers of Cassanus and so on, do wrestle with what kind of naturalistic stories one can tell given this theology. Um, and I, uh, 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 an extremely wonderful, talented um, colleague of mine, um, Simon Burton here in Edinburgh is writing about that in many ways. Um, and so he'll, he, he's taking that story from kind of Bonaventure on through the early 17th century. Um, so uh, I'd push you to look at what he's got to say. And I think there is plenty. Great. And then I guess one final question um, for people who, uh, for whom this is maybe their first introduction uh, to Lefebvre, where would you recommend that they go next? Are, are there particular texts that you recommend? Um, yes. So maybe the thing for me to do is flash them onto the screen. Is that, sure. Does that yeah. make sense? That um, because great. because I, have, I do have a couple of bibliographies that are, they very, very much are, are starting one out. Um, but, all right. I think you can see them now. Yes. All right. So I, I just have, you know, think Lefebvre and his circle are a mythical origin point for the French Renaissance. So there, that is to say, there's plenty to read um, in French, especially. But here's some big hits, if you like, on context. Um, I would look closely at Jonathan Reed's book from 2009 um, because it deals with how Lefebvre's network over the first half of the 16th century turns into um, the undergirding of several facets of intellectual life and not just the evangelical one though, that's his focus. Um, several facets of intellectual life in the 16th century. Um, the backstory is the very first one there, Augustin Renaudet. 
there, or most of the stuff isn't translated, right? So most of the stuff is, is you just have to go through these um, sometimes a little bit crabby Latin. Um, I've mentioned the controversy with Erasmus, however, and that controversy is, is um, translated along with um, the preface to Lefebvre's um, Quincuplex Solterium from 1509 um, in Obermann's Forerunners of the Reformation. So that's, that's an interesting document as well because it takes you into a number of different possibilities. And then I've been you know, harping on the mathematical angle of this story, which I think really hasn't been looked at until now with kind of an unwavering gaze. And so the story that I've told you is in some ways drawn out of a book that I published a couple of years ago, Making Mathematical Culture, and you'll see that here in the middle. But you know, um, th these are some other really lovely, um, eloquent and important, I think, books that help describe several different contexts where mathematics matters that I've been looking at. There's, you know, I, I, I could have gotten carried away here, but there's places to start. I mentioned David's books. Um, Robert Goulding has a magnificent story to tell about how the history of mathematics um, becomes its own geneal genealogical problem, especially with Ramus, Peter Ramus. Um, um, and then there's Rice and Zorak's books, which I, I also commend to you. You know, I could keep talking about these things, but I, I think I'll, I'll stop sharing there um, and hope that if you want to go back and pause over those pages, you can pull those up. Great. Well, um, first, let me just thank you one more time for helping uh, uh, provide a really easy to follow and excellent presentation um, for uh, a figure in a topic that I think many of us uh, who uh, didn't do so great in, you know, uh, calculus in high school uh, are probably avoiding ever since. So me, uh, me a too. Pleasure. <laughs> um, and I want to thank uh, especially uh, the American Cusano Society, our co-organizers of this series, as well as all of the co-sponsors who are helping to get word out about this event um, and and our ongoing series: the Beatrice Institute, um, the Harvard Catholic Center, the Nova Forum at USC, the Ge Genealogies of Modernity Project. Um, and the Calvert House um, at the University of Chicago. Um, do tune again next week, Tuesday at, the, at our normally scheduled time um, at seven, sorry, at 5 p.m. Uh, Central. Um, and otherwise, please join me one more time uh, in thanking Professor Osterhoff um, for this fantastic presentation. Um, he can't hear your claps, but he can hopefully hear mine. And uh, you can um, support our work at lumenchristi.org. Um, Professor Osterhoff, thank you, and we look forward to welcoming you back um, in the future. Thanks for having me. Really, it has been a, a true delight. Thank you. All right. Ciao. Ciao.